Listener Production. Hi, I'm journalist and producer Chris Walker, and this is season two of my podcast, Brains Trust. What you're about to hear is some of Australia's most interesting, funny, and complex people. Together, we'll dive deep on topics such as family, faith, fairness, and fame, and what I'm grandiosely calling a tapestry of conversation. Oh, it's delightful. I felt like we had just like this little philosophy session. Brains trustees this season include comedian and broadcaster Tommy Little. I remember when the internet started. Didn't think it was going to be a big deal? I, no, I said, no, this isn't going to stick around. When COVID started, I literally thought two weeks, fine guys. And so I'm very hesitant to have a hardline view on anything. It's <laughs> kind <laughs> like you had two hardline views and didn't learn your lesson. <laughs> Author and podcaster Jamila Rizvi. I'm someone who used to be very scared of death. But in the last few years after becoming seriously ill, I have become scared of dying young. Comedian, broadcaster and man I see most days at work, Charlie Pickering. Any politician saying that they're angry about cancel culture is basically saying, I don't want anyone holding me to account for my behaviour and I don't want to change, even though the world has. US podcaster and expert on all things COVID, Rob Reed. It's anybody's guess, really, as to whether what we're in right now is the beginning of the end of COVID or merely an intermission because of the Delta variant. Journalist and TV host Samantha Armitage. I mean, some of the things that have been written on my social media, you know, the, the death threats, the rape threats, and it actually shocks me and saddens me sometimes that I've become quite immune to that. Ex-AFL player and ABC Breakfast presenter Tony Armstrong. If you're Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander here, you've got basically every key indicator towards the, the idea of success stacked against you. Like you're behind the eight ball in all of them. Career, health, education, life expectancy, like just getting to the start line, you're doing well. And podcaster and reality TV star, Abby Chatfield. I'd rather be underestimated than overestimated. I agree. Always under-promise and over-deliver. Absolutely. It's just a train wreck (laughs) doing it the other way. What's what ScoMo's done, so... uh... (laughs) Together, they are the ultimate dinner party conversation and we've saved you a seat at the table as we discuss the events, news and circumstances of our world from different perspectives. That is a really complex question. That's a interesting question. That's a really tricky question. Well, hang on, let me think about how I felt about that. If you're anything like me, you've used the F word a lot this year. So in homage to that powerfully cathartic expression, I've named each instalment of Brains Trust with an F word. Our first episode is fetal, meaning your condition or health. We anticipated 2021 as a return to freedom and some semblance of normality. But that hasn't really happened. The Delta variant, vaccine hesitancy, botched rollouts, all things contributing very much to a feeling of another year lost and something we are all desperate to escape. We've all tried hard to find ways to keep our heads above water, both physically and mentally. But Tommy Little sought a more unique option, trying to get his pilot's licence. I started to sit at home and think, I've got to get the fuck out. I need to be able to fly a plane. I need to get my boat licence. I need to make sure that I can't get trapped. Okay, so hold on. You've, you, was, you had a genuine fear of being locked down I, as in that you thought you were never going to get out? I just thought, I suddenly started to kick into all these modes of like, you've got to make yourself have these skills to be able to, like a little voice in my head was going like this, you can't lock me down. Just like that. Was it the extremity that you needed? (laughs) What do you mean? You had to get up in the air in order to... I just wanted to have options. 
So I, I wanted to, if if commercial flights weren't happening, or you know, I wanted to be able to have options at my disposal. So it was actually, I suddenly thought it was about you've, transport. You've got to be Jason Bourne. <laughs> so, and of course, like any of those thoughts, they're pretty fleeting. And like the first time I went up in a jet, I spewed oh, twenty times. Yeah. Um, I think I, I got to about the 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 twentieth spew, and then Steve, the pilot, just kindly went, um, Tommy. Mate, if you are going to continue to vomit, can you please not do it into your intercom microphone? <laughs> <laughs> so you said you felt trapped. Yes. Because I'd never had the idea of borders closing in my lifetime. Like I didn't even know that states, up until this, that states could just shut your borders. And so too much time in my own head when I started to think about that. And then, you know, you couldn't go down to, I'm, I'm in Melbourne, you couldn't go out of Melbourne, and and I just started to go. What if this gets to suburb and house? And I just started to panic about it. But is it was it being inside your own head the thing you feared, or was it not being? That's always the thing that I fear. What do you mean? Is it? <laughs> yeah, too much, too much idle time. I never. If I sit in a room by myself for five minutes, I never come out of that room. Are you happy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Has someone? Do you, does someone help you with that? Um. I've had various. Do you mean a counselor? Uh, Is that what you could mean? be. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I had a psych for a long time, and then um, she moved away, and I used that as a great excuse to not go anymore. You didn't like going. And look at me, I'm learning to fly because I'm scared I might get trapped. <laughs> I'm doing fine. <laughs> we should call her and just see if that's all good. <laughs> yeah, that's fine, right? <laughs> Imagine that escape too. Imagine trying to get out and. Still getting plane sick on the way. We gotta, we gotta go. It just also takes ages to get your part. It's just not, yeah. it's not the quickest way to get out of it. Yeah, it's been a year in the making. Guys, we need to get out, but not for another two years. <laughs> so while Tommy wishes to circumvent the various premieres border bans, former Sunrise host Samantha Armitage is sceptical about the rise in power of our state leaders. You once wrote that you wouldn't trust the state premieres to organise a chook <laughs> raffle. Oh, thank you for bringing that up, Chris. (laughs) That's true. Well, for years and years and years, I have been saying on air, like a lot of other things, I've been quite brave on air, um, that I I always thought we were over-governed. I always thought Federation was um, a disaster waiting to happen. I didn't have any, any... you know, solutions for that, but I was happy to get stuck in. But I always thought we were over-governed. I always, I think that we could do it in this country with a federal uh, a federal government. And, and I'm a student of politics. I've got a minor in politics, so I'm fascinated by it. And, I, you know, you could have councils running your local, what you need to do around town. And, and not. Have, have a, yeah, bins and roads, uh, what is it, roads, rates and rubbish, and then have a federal government running your, your health and your your education and your defence and, you know, whatnot. And I I never really saw the need for state governments and I, I feel like most Australians didn't either. I certainly didn't <laughs> really know their state government very well and then all of a sudden COVID hit and we had all these bloody premiers on the television every day becoming superstars um, and many of whom at the beginning really did not know what to do. Yeah, I, I, th- I think state governments are... Uh, not necessarily necessary. Do you feel like Scott Morrison should apologise for the vaccine rollout? Well, I think, oh gosh, well, I think take the vaccine rollout separate to the messaging around AstraZeneca. 
I think they're separate sort of issues, kind of. Uh, I think the messaging around AstraZeneca was a real shame and diabolical because we had lots of um, vaccines here that we're now sending offshore to the Pacific and Indonesia because Australians don't want them because now they want the visor because the messaging was that AstraZeneca Mm. was dangerous. Um, So, look, from a political, because I... I've worked in politics. I mean, they're never really going to say sorry, are they? Because from a messaging point of view, that makes them look um, weak and on the back foot. It's all about words in politics, isn't it? And being seen to be um, knowing what you're doing. I think we we probably escaped last year to a great degree. We didn't have that many infections compared to the rest of the world. So I think the politicians probably thought, well, we're a long way away down here. We've we've managed this first year of it okay, so we'll just do our vaccine mm. rollout as it comes and now it's blowing up in our face a little bit. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll catch how up. Do you, how do you reckon he'll go at the next election? Oh, look, I, I had a discussion not long ago with Alan Jones, who I mm. um, who I quite like, and uh, Alan was saying that he you seemed trepidatious about saying that. <laughs> well, because I know <laughs> some hate on that, but I look, Alan's always been good. You can only take people as you find them. It's like when I say I'm mates with Steve Price. <laughs> but isn't that terrible that you can't be friends <laughs> with people like that? Um, yeah, AJ's always been great to me, and he he had a good point. He had a very interesting point, and he said, you know, if, uh, when you've been through a war, which is what I sort of feel like we had, this is sort of our war, like this mm. whole COVID thing is a bit wartime really. Um, the, the politician that usually gets you through wartime often loses the election off the back of that. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, they're, they're, their opinion polls are really good at the time when everything's, you know, everyone's bunkered down and then, and I suspect Gladys Berejiklian might have the same result too. I, I might, that's just me sitting here in the country um, saying that I would predict that those governments won't be re-elected at the end of all of this. As rolling lockdowns continue throughout Australia, our best bet to return to full health as a country was the vaccination program. It's not a race. It's not a competition. Of course it was a race, a race against the virus. Supply issues, poor messaging and natural hesitancy in the population made sure the rollout wasn't simple. Over the past 12 months, what developed was a misguided dichotomy of a perceived bad vaccine, AstraZeneca, and a perceived good vaccine, Pfizer, which uses a new technology known as mRNA. Tech entrepreneur Rob Reed spends his time doing TED Talks and podcasts about COVID. I asked him, what is an mRNA vaccine exactly? mRNA is uh, messenger RNA. And what messenger RNA ordinarily does in the life of a cell is it takes the blueprints from the DNA that sits in the nucleus of the cell for a particular protein. And our genes, the human genome codes for something like 23,000 proteins. I I hope I'm within a few percentage points on that. (laughs) And when a particular cell needs to make a particular protein for some purpose, and protein might just sound like meat, stuff that we eat, but basically protein is the uh, constitutes, proteins constitute the engines of our bodies. Like everything that happens inside cells is occurs because of proteins interacting with each other. So if a cell needs to make a particular protein, something called mRNA, messenger RNA, goes in essentially into the nucleus of the cell where the DNA lives and makes a copy of the blueprint of a particular protein and takes it into the cellular body and takes it to something called a ribosome, which is like a protein synthesis factory inside the cell. And that ribosome will then make a copy of that protein. 
Now, with an mRNA vaccine, you can basically take the blueprint for um, a protein that our body does not make and inject it into the body in such a way that that protein will be made in abundance or, or, or reasonable abundance by the body. So that new protein is floating around. Now, why is this interesting? Um, the COVID genome is pretty small. It only has a handful of proteins. And what all of the mRNA vaccines are currently doing is they're bringing in the, blue, the blueprints for the so-called spike protein, which is the thing that coronavirus uses to you know, hook onto cells and, and get us sick. And so what happens with an mRNA vaccine is that one protein, not the entire virus, but just a sliver of that virus starts getting made in abundance. The body recognizes it as an alien thing. It's something that the body does not make. And so the immune system says, ooh, I don't like this thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to war with anything that bears a resemblance to this. And so we train our immune system on just this one protein that the deadly virus has, not the whole virus. And the body's immune system learns to recognize that one protein, in this particular case, the spike, and fight anything that's carrying it. And that's how the vaccine works. And it's, it's a new technology and it's very exciting. And is there any reason for people to be stressed about it? Like I know that there was some concern in the scientific community about rolling it out, um, what they thought was quickly, although it's been worked on for some time. Yeah. Well, it's, um, I guess it's sort of a numbers game. And whenever something is new, um, you can find out that there are, you know, bad things about it. We're, we're probably still going to learn negative aspects of aspirin as time goes by, you know. Um, in this particular case, we know how deadly COVID is. The numbers are unbelievably stark. And um, the, the vaccine, I, I hope I get these numbers right, but I understand that in the entire history of vaccinology, there has never been um, a negative effect, has never emerged from a vaccine more than two months after the initial doses were given. Uh, we're now seven months into the history of these vaccines. Yeah, right. Hundreds of millions of people have gotten doses and the side effects, uh, such as they are, have been extremely rare and um, very, very, very few of them have led to significant illness, uh, let alone death. And so if you look at, you know, the number of complications that have been definitively tied to the vaccines and compare them to the number of complications that have been tied to COVID, it's many, many, many orders of magnitude in terms of the risk that one takes and not getting a vaccine versus getting one. And whenever something's new, it is, you know, it is scary. And so, yeah, this is a new type of vaccine, but um, the, the numbers are vast at this point, the number of people who have been administered these things. And with, you know, again, very, very few significant complications. The Australian vaccine experience has been one of railing against bumbling governments and marvelling at the efforts of the science community. As comedian and host of The Weekly, Charlie Pickering explores. Science hit it out of the park. Like, to have multiple vaccines within about a year of the pandemic hitting is, like, it's a miracle. Mm. And, and, well, it's not really. It's, it's not a miracle. It, it's, not it's, a miracle. it's actually science. <laughs> um, but it, it feels, that's the thing, it feels miraculous. And, and on a historical scale... Um, that's incredibly quick. Now, admittedly, if you're a pharmaceutical company, if you wanted to make money, you'd come up with a vaccine that gets rolled out to seven, eight billion people around the world. Mm. Great way to make some coin. So there was a real incentive. There was a profit-driven motive there for pharmaceutical companies. But the fact is science did it, and I think it should change people's attitude towards science. 
But a couple of other things have happened is, I mean, in Australia, the the delivery of that to the people has been, I, I would say, close to a disaster. Like it's 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 absolutely unsatisfactory as a result. And I, I don't want to be political with this because I think that's the problem is I think the pandemic has been politicised the whole way along and the only times things have gone well is when politics has been put, to, put aside and the Prime Minister worked with all of the state premiers regardless of what parties they were from. Mm. And it's like they solved some problems doing that and the moment those problems were solved, they started fighting about nonsense again. Mm. And I don't think politics helps things like this, but... You have to say objectively, we are so far behind the rest of the world. Like the US is nudging seventy percent; they barely have a functioning health system. Like, and they've they've had upwards of six hundred thousand people die of COVID. It, their whole response to COVID has been an unmitigated disaster, and they've still nailed mm. the vaccination. So there's just in so many ways that politics is letting us down, and it's not like it's a necessity. Oh, it's such a big job. Of course, there's going to be teething problems. Other countries have managed it and we haven't. Am I angry? Yeah. <laughs> you seem... My observation of you is that you're quite afraid of the virus. For, a, for a, what are you, 41, 42? Yeah. For, well, almost 44, actually. Um, and that sounds like a funny thing to say because, of course, we should be afraid of a rogue pathogen. Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, I smoked hard for about probably uh, for about seven or eight years. Like mm. I was smoking about two and a half packs a day at one point. And so I actually don't know if my lungs would, how well they'd stand up in a in the event of um, of getting COVID. You know, because you, you, you don't know if mm. how, how hard it's going to hit you. Plenty of 40-year-olds in the States said goodbye to their families on iPads in the hospital. You know, and, and I read probably a few too many of those stories about how badly it can go. And whilst we didn't reach that level of health crisis here, I would much rather take precautions and make sure that I don't have to find out if my lungs would stand up to that or I don't have to find out if I would be one of the unlucky sub-50s to to die from COVID. That seems to me like a stupid risk to take. Mm. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm relatively careful with that stuff. So Charlie was taking a few extra precautions not to get COVID and so was former AFL player and broadcaster Tony Armstrong. Being Aboriginal, we've got worse health outcomes and we're more vulnerable. That said, I know that the lifestyle I lead in terms of all of my, all of the key metrics have me as an outlier in the Indigenous community. I've still got that kind of inbuilt into me. Mm -hmm. So probably, I guess, subconsciously a little bit frightened of it, but rationally not really. Mm. That said, I understand that if I act like a fucking idiot, mm. I'm not going to be of any help to anyone. So I'm really, really happy to do my my, my bit. So did you lock down last year in Melbourne? Yep. On your own? I uh, know. I was with one other housemate. Oh. So it, we were so lucky. We just were very, very relaxed people. Not too much gets on either of our nerves and all of our interests are basically a, almost a concentric circle in that we like all the same music, we're into the same kind of yeah, great. TV. So it was actually as good as it could have been. As the lockdowns dragged on, Zoom check-ins with family and friends became a vital part of staying social. But for writer and podcaster Jamila Rizvi, a simple how you're feeling can be a really loaded question. So I got diagnosed with a 
brain tumour back in 2017, but it's a recurrent brain tumour. And it's also a brain tumour that does a lot of damage. And the question I get asked by kind of friends, acquaintances, work people all the time is, are you better now? And it's a really difficult, almost impossible question to answer because how can you be better from something that could come back at any moment? And how can you be better when you've been so significantly disabled by the event? So I'm okay. At the moment, brain tumour is stable and not growing, as far as I know. (laughs) You haven't (laughs) asked um, it recently? I haven't haven't asked it for a couple of months, so hopefully it's just still just chilling out the same size. What was harder, any of the physical disabilities you faced or the mental anguish that you faced from it? I had a really acute period of mental anguish when I was first diagnosed between then and the first surgery. And that was harder than anything else I've done by far. Like I would, I would have brain surgery 10 times over rather than live the mental health hell that was that three months waiting for surgery. I think I was really unwell. To someone like me who hasn't had that condition, I assume the hardest part of it is not knowing. Yeah. And not knowing how to plan, you know, and I was someone who became really, um, I, I don't normally have a really strong negativity bias, but I did when I got given that news and my brain decided to fixate on the unlikely possibility that I was going to die in the surgery. And it was all I could think about. Are you vaccinated? Yeah, I am. So were there any complications for you with your physical health and the pandemic? I would probably have been in more trouble than the average healthy 35-year-old, but my lungs aren't impacted. So not specifically as a result of COVID. It's just that I have a rubbish immune system and I rely on a lot of medications. So you've been through quite a lot in the last few years. Do you do you treat yourself well now? And I don't mean like treat yourself well as in eat healthy food. I mean mentally, do you treat yourself well? Clinically, I treat myself well. I see a psychologist regularly. Um, I have a wonderful team of doctors around me who look after me. I know how to handle my own mental health in that I know I'm someone, if I start hiding away from the world, that's a problem. I'm an extrovert. I need people around me. I know I'm good at talking to my friends and my sister and my husband when things aren't in a good way, but I don't think I'm very kind to myself. So the voice inside your head's not gentle with you? Yeah, it's a lot louder and a lot angrier than it ever was before I was sick. What's it angry about? Um, I think it's a combination of things. Angry about the things that have been taken away, um, like energy and being able to have more children and um, sort of frustration at at that lack of stamina, I suppose. And then part of my tumour growth causes, it basically busts your metabolism so you don't metabolise properly anymore, um, which means I've gained a lot of weight and I, my, I struggle with that and I beat myself up a lot because of that. Mm-hmm. It's that my body doesn't know what to do with food anymore, um, doesn't know how to use it for fuel properly anymore and stores it as fat instead. Right. And so the reality for me is to, to stay well, even apart from the 
the body image, mental health side of things, which is hard enough as it is, but to stay well, I'm sort of fighting a, a, a losing battle against it yeah, every really, day. That's really hard. Which means surviving on very little food, exercising constantly, and not really seeing any reward. <laughs> it's like a, an unrewarding boot camp. Yeah, it's very sad. <laughs> We are all predisposed to looking forward and we can all imagine having more hugs, more laughs and actual human interaction when the interruptions, lockdowns and social isolation fade. But the reality is we've been forced to spend more time with ourselves than most of us would like, which Tommy Little found challenging. It's hard work. Sure is. Yeah, it's really hard work. And, you know, anyone I'm sure that's listening to this that that goes to a, a, a psych would know that you're just exhausted, you so know. Sorry, yeah. Anything, anything, being a good person is hard work. Is it? You don't think? Um, it's it's rewarding and it's absolutely the thing that you, you should aspire to do and it's where you should get your fulfilment, but it's 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 exhausting. But I don't think it's, it doesn't appear to me that being a good person is hard for you. Does that mean I'm, I'm nailing it and I'm just working hard on it? No, but I think intrinsically your first thought is to how you can make lives better for other people. In fact, I would assume that's part of the reason you tell jokes. Mm. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Telling jokes is hard work. <laughs> 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 well, I've swapped um, I've swapped seeing a psych for, for now seeing uh, a life coach or a mentor. Oh, yeah. Um, and we've been talking about your purpose and, and, and living with purpose and trying to articulate what that is for you so you can – you know, basically keep yourself honest with how you want to live your life. And so I got mine just briefly down to um, my purpose, as I hope to live, is to to give people um, who are often forgotten unexpected moments of joy. So I try and drop that into whatever I'm doing. I mean, I'm not walking around constantly thinking about it, but if, you know, if, if ever I'm kind of, it's it's just at the back it's of my away. head. Yeah. yeah. So when has it has has that happened to you in the last two days? Every day I will try and do one thing. If I haven't, is it if it hasn't just happened, I will try and do one thing. Can and it can, it can be sending a message. It can be I had a mate literally yesterday who was having a tough time. I dropped around flowers, but it can also just be um, anything. It can be uh, you know calling your mum. It can be saying hello to a stranger. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be changing the world in a big way every day. I think just... Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but Carrie showed me a, um, we share a partner. She's your radio partner and my yes. life partner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she showed me a message that she got from a mum. I don't know if she showed you this. And the message said, um, I just wanted to say thanks to you and, and to Tommy as well. Because my young boy has a lot of trouble sleeping. He's got a few issues. and he listens to the Carrie and Tommy podcast every night mm. and it makes him feel light and it makes him feel – and it makes it easier for him to sleep. Mm. And it was unbelievably touching. Like, it was a beautiful message. It also – I don't know if the ringing endorsement you want from your radio show is that it puts people to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was, a, it, was a, uh, it was a beautiful message, yes. Charlie examined his life in lockdown over the last 18 months and made a decision to quit drinking. I think I used – 
booze is a real crutch to get through the year. And history has shown that that isn't a winning strategy over time. So you drank a lot? Yeah. Yeah. What's a lot? Um, you know, a bottle of wine a night would be a fair estimate of it and I'd mix it up. You know, like, you know, I'd drink different stuff, but it was… Like drink it upside down? Yeah. <laughs> Just swigging it from the bottle. <laughs> but I would say that there was no joy in it. And that's actually kind of part of the relationship I have with booze after last year and, and it's actually understanding that maybe… For me, my relationship with alcohol went from fun to not fun. Right. And, I, and I've always, like I've deeply loved booze for a long time. Mm. I mean, it can be fun. It can be very fun. But it, it occurred to me that, it's funny, in a year with no social element, it's actually really hard to have fun with booze when you're not drinking, like I'm not having a beer with you or mm. we might have one after work. Yeah, if we have time, yeah. Yeah, but neither of us have generally time. have time for that. Mm. The fact is that the joy came out of the drinking and that means it's a depressant and it it, it wasn't helping over time, but it took me a long time to figure that out. And and I felt like there was a darkness going on that I don't normally have. Mm. I'm not normally dark. dark. I'm pretty, I'm pretty upside and I kind of, even when things are bad, I just go, all right, well, how do we make it better or how do you flip it? I reckon when I first met you, you were probably lighter. I think I was definitely lighter when you first met me. But I, but I also, when you first met me, I was, what, mid-30s, just got close to my dream job on the project and no responsibilities. Great job. All my spare time was mine. Like I could, you know, like I… I happy days. Happy days. I was, I separated from my wife about six months into that, my first wife. So we, so when we really got to know each other, I was initially single, dream job, more money than I ever thought I would make as a comedian and a whole new environment of new people that was fun. And like I just, it, everything was a lot easier then, you know. Um, it's funny, one of the best things I could do for my mental health is go on a long bike ride. But for me, a long bike ride is about three hours. That's not been possible in my life for six years. So that's, you know, that's, your life changes, you have different responsibilities, you have kids, you, you like once you have a family, you've got to make sacrifices. I love having a family, but, you know, you just have to accept that sometimes it's hard and sometimes it wears you out. And it's just harder to be lighter when, mm. like when you've got no responsibilities, fucking being light's much easier. But being light and fun can sometimes be about other people's perception. Thanks to social media, it feels like we often judge a book by its cover. I know I have. Having never met reality TV star Abby Chatfield, I wanted to know if she's as confident and as fun as she appears. Uh, I'm going to go with no. Uh, a lot of people DM me saying, oh, my God, I wish I could go out with you, have drinks with you. Seems like so much fun. And I'm like, I, my friends have to drag me to get out past, you know, a midnight. I live alone. I love being alone. A bit like a homebody. So lockdown isn't the worst thing in the world for me. Like I, I, I just kind of potter along, do my work. I have a big personality for sure. But I don't think, I don't know. Maybe that's just how I see myself. That's an insecurity though, me thinking that I'm not very fun and not very fun to be around. Um, but I'm just like a normal, I'm just a normal bitch really. Run of the mill. <laughs> run of the mill bitch. Yeah, <laughs> that's me, run of the mill bitch, exactly. Do you see yourself as an insecure person? 
Uh, yeah, so this is actually really funny. Uh, obviously, a lot of my platform is people thinking that I'm super confident because I, I upload photos that are unedited and I say my opinions. And the thing is, it's not that I'm it's not that I'm confident and therefore I'm able to say my opinions. It's, it's that I grew up in a family where we didn't shut up and we had aggressive fights at the dinner table, not fights, but debates at the dinner table about politics and about social issues. So I just, I can't shut up. So it isn't me sitting there going, oh, should I say this? Should I not? It's genuinely just me not having the capacity to shut up. And and up the uploading of non-edited photos, that's more for me and for, I guess, my followers. But I'm I would say... My close friends would say I'm quite an insecure person, which is which is very interesting. My therapist would say I'm an insecure person, uh, which is it makes me feel like a bit of a fraud sometimes, because obviously people are like, "How do you get so confident?" Um, but I'm sitting there in therapy crying about my self worth. <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit of a a bit of a dichotomy, I think. Why are you in therapy? I had a, so I don't know if we would call it a suicide attempt, but in 2017, I, I like went to a bridge and then called the ambulance on myself. So I guess, um, but I, I've struggled with anxiety and depression. I've had pretty awful relationships um, with men. And then I, I was pretty sweet. Then I went on reality TV and it all came crumbling down. So now I'm in therapy once or twice a week um, and on antidepressants as well. Can you tell me about what goes on in your head? It's mostly anxiety that gets so buzzy that it turns into depression, if that makes sense. It's like I will just feel like physically ill and then I think what happens my brain says, what are you anxious about? And then it'll find something to be anxious about, if that makes sense. And then it will get overwhelming and then I'll probably just like sleep all day to stop the anxiety. Being asleep is better than being awake sometimes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's obviously great to hear that, you you know, you're getting help and stuff for your mental health. Mm because there's really no other way out of it, I reckon. But do you feel close to being the person you want to be yet or? I have a lot of anxieties around relationships, like romantic relationships. Like I have a big issue with feeling worthy in romantic relationships. But there's nothing about me that I would want to change. Like I don't feel, it's it's very bizarre. Like I'm, I'm extremely insecure, but I, I also do really like who I am and what I do and I, and I, love my life and I think that I'm I'm a worthy person in the world. I think it just that insecurity comes in relation to romantic relationships because of, you know, daddy issues. We love mm-hmm. that. Um, so, yeah, I think I am pretty close. And I also have recently in the past couple of months um, had a moment to be able to look back on the last two years going from being like getting death threats and being trolled and, and being, you know, having suicidal ideation again you know, and, you know, being on three reality shows and having edits and whatever and being, like, pretty proud of myself for how I've handled it and how I've come out the other side and I can now have and now the, the career that I have as well. So I'm like, I'm pretty, she's pretty happy. Pretty happy with Abby. Abby's happy? Yeah, Abby's pretty happy. Sam Armitage, who in March this year finished up on the breakfast show Sunrise, is also feeling a sense of contentment. I'm in a good spot in my life. It's it's what I needed to do. It was definitely um, coming for me. I, I knew for about the last 12 months that I needed to make some changes in my life um, for many reasons. But so right now it's, it's overall happy. There are days when I miss um, the adrenaline of live TV, but that's it. I don't, I don't miss the job. I just sometimes miss live TV. But um, for the most part, I really needed to 
get my cortisol levels back in check and just <laughs> not have that adrenaline hit every day because it's a lot. And I just needed some time away from the spotlight, which I'm trying to do. Sometimes the spotlight follows me. But ultimately I'm very happy. You know, Rich and I got married on New Year's Eve, so we're kind of newlyweds, although it doesn't really feel like, I feel like I've known him forever, But and we're having a very low-key life. We didn't have a honeymoon. We had a wedding for 10 people in the garden because of lockdown. You know, we're all in this COVID thing together and life feels weird. And overall I'm very content. So you said then about the cortisol levels, which is interesting in terms of, live TV, when did you feel most comfortable doing that job and when did you feel least comfortable? Well, funnily enough, the most relaxed and happy I ever felt doing that job, that big job that got me so much attention, um, was actually the on-air bits. You know, you actually, you feel like a, with a job like that, um, you feel like you're piloting a plane. You sort of take off, you're, you're hosting, you're, you're piloting for four hours live and then you bring it into land and then you go off and do have your day. Um, and actually my happiest moments were when I was just interviewing or, you know, doing something live. You're thinking fast, you're, um, you're hoping to entertain, you're informing. It's a huge job and I enjoyed it very much. Um, the unhappiest moments were the enormous amounts of attention. You know, you'd come off. And I had certain days when um, I'd come off air and, and Channel 7 at Martin Place is a, a very tiny studio based on the New York Rockefeller Centre design. And so it's a big glass studio, but really it's just three floors of offices and and we all shared a change room. We all, you know, the boys had one change room, the girls had another change room. It wasn't like the day, you know, the Channel 9 of old where everybody had their own dressing room and it was all very glamorous. With the star on the door. (laughs) You'd literally come off air and you'd be in your bra and undies downstairs all getting changed (laughs) together. Um, So it was very unglamorous and very tiny. And so there was no way to go. So you'd come off air after four hours of live and your shoulders would be up around your ears, you know, you're on four hours. And you'd think, where can I go and just have five minutes just to get my adrenaline down, just to get myself back in line? And you'd go, and, I, I would go and sit in the fire stairs and until someone came clomping past you, sorry, excuse me, excuse me. And you'd be like, oh, Jesus, can I just have five minutes to myself? Um, <laughs> just to come down after a show. So there was a hell of a lot of adrenaline. It's all energy out. You're, you're sort of hoping to entertain. So it's all, you're hosting. By the, you, know, you know what it's like to host a dinner party or a barbecue. You're always yeah. on, you're always making sure everyone's got a drink, everyone's happy, you know, so that's yeah. what you're doing and it's bloody exhausting. But you said there's a lot of energy out, but there was a lot of energy in too because, you know, more than most perhaps you receive a lot of abuse Quite threatening, <laughs> yes. quite threatening abuse. Yeah. Can you just explain to me what it's like to wake up in the morning and have that on your phone? Uh, well, it, it makes you feel sick. There were quite a few days in there um, where I would wake up and you're, that that split second when your eyes open, you think, oh, "What? What?" giant shitstorm is going to hit today. What is mm. going to happen? What is going to be written about me in a newspaper? Who will have leaked something terrible? Um, you know, what is coming for me today? You know, we'd have a scenario where there were four people on set doing something or, you know, like, for instance, the um, the the girl from Sex and the City and we did a dumb Chris- skit on set, Kristen Davis, Charlotte yeah, from Sex yeah. and the City, and four of us did that and... 
guess who got blamed for it? You know, like me. And I just sort of sat there and thought, why is all this stuff coming for me? You know, I'm not the only one. And, and can I say the day before that upstairs in the office when the producers were like, we're going to do this tomorrow. And I was thinking, really? That's so lame. You know, and you guys are going to wear wigs. And I was like, really? <laughs> you know, I don't have days where I thought, you know, I've, I've got a journalism degree at university. Really? Do I have to do this stuff? Anyway, you do it because it's your job. And then. Um, and you got to fill three to four hours. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> you're going to end up doing some, sh- you're going to do some shit that's weird. <laughs> And and it's not the seven thirty report. Like I wasn't under any illusions that you know we were, you know, there to to be totally serious all the time. But and that was fine. It was just the reaction to it that got me because I'm sort of like, well, hang on, how come I'm singled out in this stuff? So that was very wearing. That's very wearing. And I had uh, many moments where I was um, deeply upset and. Uh, you know, I would. I had many, many times where I'd sort of call, as a fully grown woman, I'm not ashamed to admit this, I'd call my mum in tears and say, they're saying this about me and this is that, you know, and this is not. And, and it was stuff you couldn't even write. You know, you'd sort of think, where has this come from? Who Who is working against me like this? You know, the death threats, the rape threats, the, the horrific things. Rape all actually, Yeah, all the time. That was, that was a real regular, it's by anonymous people. Um, and it actually shocks me and saddens me sometimes that I've become quite immune to that because I think normal people would be horrified whereas I sort of just had to go, this is part of my life. Is it also, is it safe? Um, there was many times we had to have police outside my house. Um, my house in the country was vandalised six times. Um, which was my Six sanctuary, time. yeah. So you get to a point you don't feel safe there. I mean, that was part of the reason I sold it in the end, you know. So I was a single woman living on my own with the dog and, and it was very, very unsafe at times. And then you just get to a point in the end where you think, I don't need, this is not my life. I don't need to yeah. be, I'm not a Kardashian. I didn't go into this to be famous. <laughs> I'm a journalist by trade. Somehow along the way I became the story and that didn't sit comfortably with me. So I genuinely wanted to step out and reset my life. A reset that Jamila wanted to make in her life was learning to say no. How are you going with that? Badly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am... Um, I think it's a combination of things. I am a really enthusiastic person. Um, I have really bad FOMO. I like doing everything. Like I want to have a go at everything. Mm-hmm. Um, Aerial skiing. And well, maybe not that because mm. I think I'd probably like break too many bones to be able to have a go at anything else afterwards. <laughs> there's a there's a calculation to be made there. Um, but I, I, I like to be... And that sounds like I, I want to be a daredevil. Okay, that's not what I mean. I mean I like to be involved in things. I like to see people. I like to read, be reading every book. I like to be trying all the new stupid trends. I'm a horrible person who's a fashion slave and just follows what everyone else is doing because I like trying things and doing things, which makes it hard to say no because everything's exciting. Um, and I'm really fortunate, I think, work-wise that I'm in a position in, in my career now that, I can pick and choose a little bit, which means there's always too many good things going on that I want to be part of or or want to do things for. And then layer on top of that, having been sick for a few years and of being stuck at home, stuck in a bed, not able to do things, having to have someone with you all the time because you can't be alone after brain surgery for weeks and weeks, I just feel like I'm making up for lost time 
So I have a really bad tendency to say yes to everything because I want to do things and then I run myself down and I get exhausted and I get sick. So I really want to say no more and I don't seem to be having any success with that. Do you live in the present, do you think? No, I think I live in the future. What's it like? Stressful. Sounds stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have this sort of theory that I've got some, I've got a few mates who experience really hectic depression and they are all people who spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about the past. They're stuck in the, they're stuck in the past. Yeah, and, and worrying about things that have happened or reliving things or missing things or mourning things. Um, and I have a bunch of mates who have anxiety and I'm someone who can be a bit anxious. It's not particularly serious at the moment, but it has been in the past. And we do the opposite. We look forward and we worry about what might happen. And I feel like there are those very centred, well-balanced people who just live in the moment and don't get depressed and don't get anxious. I think they're quite rare, but I'm married to one. Oh, that's so annoying. And they're actually just quite annoying. Yeah, that's really annoying. They're happy, but they're annoying. (laughs) So whilst we all deal with our present, we also dream about a less COVID-affected future. But Rob Reed wants to remind you that we do need to give some consideration to the next pandemic. There are two threats that we face in terms of future pandemics. Um, Let's start with the known one, which is that we have been going through this ghastly experience with COVID. And in very recent history, quite a number of novel viruses like COVID have come, you know, essentially optically out of nowhere and have become, you know, anywhere from small to very significant problems. To just name a handful, uh, there was, of course, SARS about 20 years ago. Um, There was something that's less well-known called MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which came out um, some years after SARS. There was Zika quite recently, and of course, now there's COVID. This is four outbreaks in 20 years. Mm. And what we need to be worried about here is that there's really no reason why any of these outbreaks, quote-unquote, had to be as relatively benign as they are. Now, it'll sound crazy to use the word benign in conjunction with COVID, given that millions of people have died and, you know, I mean, all the, you know, the trillions of dollars in economic, economic damage, et cetera. Um, but COVID is not particularly deadly compared to a lot of other diseases that are out there. So take SARS. I mean, SARS kills, its case fatality rate is somewhere in the neighborhood of 10%. Uh, the case fatality rate for MERS is closer to 30 to 35%. Yeah, right. They just don't happen to be particularly contagious diseases. Um, in the case of SARS, um, it's not very contagious simply because, or it didn't prove to be very contagious, simply because people became extremely symptomatic extremely quickly. And so there just wasn't much of an incubation period for it to spread. And um, I believe that we can say similar things about MERS, although I know fewer things about MERS. So when we view recent history, and those are four, you know, significant diseases that have busted out in the last 20 years right there, this is going to keep happening. And we need to be very, very concerned about the very real prospect that something as transmissible, as contagious as COVID is going to come along with a much higher case fatality rate. That's something that nature can deal to us. So that's risk number one. And that's ample reason right there to be very, very concerned about future pandemic risk and to take all the measures we possibly can to mitigate those risks. The greater risk, in my view, is the possibility that at some point someone is going to engineer a virus 
with the express intention of making it as deadly as possible. And the, the problem with that is, you know, COVID wishes us no harm. Mother Nature wishes us no harm. Ultimately, yeah. these things were created by, you know, collisions of, of DNA and critters in the wild and humanity and possibly laboratories. I mean, that possibility is definitely out there. But nobody sat down and designed COVID or SARS or MERS to kill as many of us as possible. But should somebody do that, um, it is it is presumptive that they would be, you know, doing it malevolently and trying to cause maximum destruction. So we could see contagiousness that goes far beyond COVID. We could see lethality that goes far beyond COVID. We could see far longer incubation periods of asymptomatic transmission. And you twist any of those knobs and, you know, we could have something that could genuinely um, threaten civilization itself. All right, that's full on. If you'd rather put that scariness to one side... I'll leave you with some textbook Tommy Little ambivalence for his own well-being. I did a thongy <laughs> once and I got told on radio that I was going to get a fungal infection in my mouth from a doctor because there was this, I did a, a show at a Old Bar is the name of the town. It's a tiny town in the middle of nowhere and has this um, local pub that was heaving. Mm. Did a stand-up show there and... Uh, they yelled at me to do a shoey and I was like, okay, I'll do a shoey because <laughs> I'm desperate to please anyone. <laughs> and then I said, who's got a shoe? And this bloke got up and walked on stage in thongs and he just put a thong in my mouth and funneled a beer down to it. And so if, again, if I can have the vaccine for COVID, I, I will have that. And if someone can cure whatever bill from Old Bar has given me, I'll have that too. <laughs> On the next episode of Brains Trust, we're on to our next F word, family. What did family mean to everyone this year? And you kind of blink and you realise that they're, they're yeah. heaps bigger, they're, they're big. You know, the first time you, you have to really work to lift them up and you just go, man, this feels like it happened so quickly. Yeah. But, but actually, the you know, the, the days are long and the years are short with kids. Brains Trust is presented by me, Chris Walker, produced by Chris Marsh, Carly Humby and Sam Kavanagh. See you next time as we continue the conversation with our Brains Trust.